Good morning, Providence Church. I appreciate that warm welcome and the the kind words from my brother Jared. No pressure, right? (laughs) Well, my name's Cliff, and I get to lead and serve our city groups at our West location, as Jared shared. And um, it's been a privilege to be here, such a joy to be here with you all this morning. My family and I, as Jared mentioned, are from Florida, originally from Miami, Florida, but we spent the last 13 years in Orlando before coming here. And so it has been a little bit of a culture shock, but in a good way. I mean, we're not used to seeing snow. And so right now it's actually pretty refreshing. I know you guys are like, this guy's crazy, but that's the truth. But on a serious note, I'm excited to preach and herald God's word to you all this morning. I've heard so many great things about the church. And believe it or not, before I even came here, I was watching from afar on how God's hand and his favor has been amongst Providence Church. And so if you have your Bible or your app, um, go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's where we'll be camping out this morning. And today, I'd like to preach a message called God's Will for You. God's Will for You. What is God's will for my life? How many of us here this morning have asked ourselves that question? How many of us here believe that we have the answer to that question? Some of you may be saying, is there a true answer to that question? What is God's will for my life? And Providence, I can tell you that throughout the entirety of Scripture, God has much to say about his will. Yet many of us, when we think about God's will, we ask questions like this. What is my purpose in life? Should I marry him or her? Is he or she the one? Is that going to be my boo? What is my job? What should I accept this job offer that I've received? Is God calling me to live in a particular city? Should I have kids? How many kids should I have? Should I plan on retiring? Is there a place for me in ministry? And ultimately, when we're asking ourselves these questions, what we're asking is this. What should I do? But today, what I'd like to encourage us to see from this text is this. If you're a Christian or not yet a Christian, wanting to know God's will for your life, the first question to pose is not what should I do, but rather who should I be? You know, in order to get the right answers, we have to learn how to ask the right questions. And so in our text today, we'll see that God's will for us as believers is directly rooted in our gospel identity. That's who we are in Jesus and thus who we should be. But before we go into this passage, let me be a tour guide for you all. I know some of us may have recently read 1 Thessalonians if we're having our soap and quiet times in the morning, but some of us may have never read 1 Thessalonians, so bear with me. Believe it or not, 1 Thessalonians is believed to be the Apostle Paul's first letter written in the Bible. This city, Thessalonica, was made up of roughly 100,000 people, 100,000 diverse people, both Jews and Gentiles. And it was the capital of a Roman province, a Roman province of Macedonia, which today is northern and central Greece. And so according to scripture, we have the great apostle Paul, his son in the faith, Timothy, and his partner in the gospel, Silas. They come there to Thessalonica and they preach the gospel for over three weeks. And what happens? Faithful preaching, people come to faith in Jesus. Amen. But, as we also know, Paul has a lot of haters. 
a lot. And so what ends up happening is we have these Jews, they come up, they riot against Paul. They give false accusations about our brothers, and they ultimately are forced them, forced them to leave the city. They're forced to flee. And so the Thessalonian church, this new church plant flourishing in a new city, lost its original planters and its leaders. That's like if your very own Pastor Jared and Andrew came here and began to plant Providence Church and people came to faith and they gathered and then three months in they just said, hey, we'll see you later. That's not a good look, right? Not a good look at all. But Paul being a great church planter and a great shepherd, he sends young Timmy or Timothy back to check on the Thessalonian church because he wants to see how they're doing. And Timothy gives him a positive report. And so in our text today, jumping back into the text, we find ourselves toward the end of chapter 5, the very last chapter of First Thessalonians, where Paul is giving some final instructions to encourage and exhort and charge the people there. Read with me again verses 16 through 18 of chapter 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so if you're taking notes today, our big picture, our main framework that we'll be working from is this. It's God's will for you to, three words, worship him always. It's God's will for us to worship him always. In these verses, we're being instructed and called to be, right, remember that, to be this kind of certain people. The Apostle Paul gives us three ways specifically that we can be these kinds of people in accordance to God's will. The first being this, it is God's will for us to, number one, be joyful always. It's God's will for us to be joyful always. Verse 16 reads as a two-word verse, rejoice always. Providence, our understanding of Christian joy is not just important. It's essential In writing to the Thessalonians, Paul truly understood that no matter or regardless of how crazy or even impossible it sounds, rejoicing always is a command of God. The Thessalonians had to deal with hard times too. They faced persecution. They were going through mourning as members of their church, this brand new church plant, had passed away. And they were going through the normalcies of the Christian faith, just as we are today, fighting the good fight as believers. And yet in writing to them, Paul knew that while suffering, hardships, and the most challenging of times are taking place, true biblical joy must outshine and rise above these sorrows. And I say that Paul knew that because in Scripture we have the full revealed word of God, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this about himself. He was sorrowful, yet rejoicing. And so biblical joy is spiritual joy. This joy is a fruit of the spirit that indwells us. And pastor and theologian John Piper defines spiritual joy or Christian joy this way. I think it's very helpful. I love this. And if you don't love it, it's okay. There's grace for you too. So Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit. As he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Again, I'll read that again. 
Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word. That's the scriptures, that's the Bible, that's the gospel, but also in the world around us. And so in defining what joy is, I think it's really helpful to also define what joy is not, right? Because a lot of us have our our perspective of joy. I did too. And what I want to share is that joy is not happiness, Joy does not equal happiness. Happiness is based upon happenings or whether or not things are going well or not. But true spiritual joy can remain even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our most challenging of times. You see, joy is a permanent possession While happiness is flirtatiously fleeting, joy stays. Happiness comes and it goes. So why aren't we more happy or better yet, joyful as Christians? I mean, if I'm being honest, I know many of you here are are like, sure, Cliff, thanks for coming out here, man. We appreciate it, but really, dude, rejoice always. Be joyful always, considering my pain, my loss, my losses, my, my suffering, my sorrows, my crazy kids, my hectic schedule, that jerk of a boss. I mean, y- y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Like, how can I rejoice in those times? You know, thinking back on a situation earlier this year, I never thought I'd be this guy, but I got the date down and everything. July 14th at approximately 6 o'clock. We had this huge city group appreciation party for all of our leaders. I mean, it was dope, y'all. It was so cool. There was over 100 city group leaders there. Um, they had adults. Kids were there. We grilled out. Um, the, the, the leaders brought um, different side dishes for, for it to be potluck style. We had this huge three-story slide for kids to go ahead and slide down. We had cornhole. I love playing cornhole. I mean, it was awesome. We even had these I love my city group signs for the leaders to come and take their photos and put them up on Facebook and social media. It it was awesome. And John McFarland, my counterpart and I, we had worked so hard for all this thing to happen and everything was going according to plan. And you know, that's not normal, right? There's always something that messes up, but everything's going according to plan and it's awesome. And as this party, this get together, this celebration for our leaders to encourage them comes to an end, we're cleaning up, and uh, Pastor Chris Orusco, who you may or may not know, you know, lead pastor at um, City Light Omaha, and Phil Robinson, they're shooting some hoops, and they're playing a casual game of horse. And if you don't know what horse is, it's a game where you just shoot shots around casually. If the person makes the shot, you have to match it. If you don't get it, you get a letter. Once you get up the horse, you're out, right? And so they asked me to play, and I'm like, sure, I'll play. Side note, never should have played. Never should have played. If you guys don't know this, I hate saying it. Chris Oruska is a pretty good, I mean, better yet, he's a very good basketball player and a phenomenal shooter. So I'll just say this. I did not win any games. I didn't win any of them. But facing elimination in our last game, Chris does this, like, fancy little behind-the-backboard layup, right? And he's like, yeah, 300-pound-plus, man. You go do that, right? And so I go, and I run, and I attempt to do the layup, right? And the next thing you know, all I remember feeling is if, like, I had ran into the pole, but I wasn't quite near the pole. And then I was like, did somebody just hit me in my knee with a baseball bat? And um, next thing you know, I'm on the ground. 
And Chris and Phil, my wife's there. She's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, Lord, what happened? And then I get up, and I'm like, I can't get up. And I look at my right knee, and I'm like, where's my kneecap? So my kneecap literally had came out of the socket and rolled into another part of my leg. I didn't even know that was possible. So I'm like, oh, this is bad. This is really, really bad. And so, you know, you know what happens in those type of situations, right? You start thinking about life, right? Like, I know I'm not going to die. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm not going to die, but this is not good. And so I say that because I began to think about the next day. The next day I was supposed to go to seminary at RTS and finish three classes that I had been working for for two and a half months. That didn't and couldn't happen. I was also supposed to wed some people who had spent a lot of money for the wedding, and I walked through the gospel and walking with them and so happy to marry them, and that couldn't happen. And I could go on and on about things that didn't go well or obstacles that were in the way. It was a painful, painful process. It took a toll on my family, and there were much times of doubt, frustration, and sorrow. But what I want to tell you and give God glory about in this incident and in it and through it was this. By the enablement of the Holy Spirit, I was able to be joyful in the Lord. Somehow, as everything happened, God reminded me and affirmed in me all the things that are true of him. Specifically, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 came to mind. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I knew in my heart of hearts, Providence, that God loves me and I love him and that all things work together for good and for his purposes. So even my broke knee during a game in horse could be used for his purpose. And that gave me joy. I was able to trust God. And he gave me supernatural gratitude that good would come out of it. And it did. So again, how can a person possibly rejoice given their hurts, their sorrows, and their pain? I'll put it on a guy much smarter than I, right? This is what he says. He says that joy is not something that we work on. Joy is something that we live in. We are able to experience constant joy because of the presence of God's spirit that indwells within us. And so our joy is never generated from the outside in, but always from the inside out. That make sense? And so Christian hip-hop artist Andy Minio says it this way in one of his songs. He says, you can't take my joy because the world didn't give it to me. And so I want us to know that we should be able to have joy in the Lord, and that's one of the most distinctive marks of, as us that we should have as believers. Joy is a good feeling in our souls, yes. In emotion, yes. But it's produced by the Holy Spirit and causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. This type of joy or rejoicing is not something that we can manufacture, but rather a byproduct of the Holy Spirit within us. Amen? And so joyful believers are also prayerful believers. The way to rejoice more is to pray without ceasing. And our second command from God in this text is that we would be able to be prayerful always. Number two, it's God's will for us to be prayerful always. As verse 17 states, pray without ceasing. Martin Luther King Jr. is known to have said this. Also, just for clarity, Martin Luther is known to say it too. It's one of them. Martin Luther King Jr. or Martin Luther is known to have said this. Okay? 
Just put that out there. To be a Christian without prayer is no more, is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. In other words, breathing and prayer are, are used synonymously for us. Prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian faith. To pray always or without ceasing doesn't mean that we pray 24-7. What it means is that we wouldn't allow anything going on in our lives to hinder us from prayer. Oftentimes, we prioritize day-to-day chores or the business of life before our prayer life as if it gets in the way, as if it is the problem. You know, um, I'll shower. I'll wake up and I'll shower, and then I'll get some time with the Lord. Or I'll wait till I drop the kids off, and then I'll get with the Lord. Or if you want me to get real, real, I'll watch and binge watch This Is Us on Netflix and Hulu, right? And then I'll spend that time with the Lord. But what did Jesus, our Lord, tell his disciples? He says they ought to pray always and not lose heart in Luke chapter 18. Praying always means that we persevere in prayer. It means that we pray earnestly, that we pray passionately, and that we also pray expectantly. Luke 11, 9 through 10, Jesus says this. So I say to you, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened for everyone who asks receives and the one who searches finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened. George Muller. Has anybody heard of that name before? If you haven't, I see some heads nodding, but if you haven't, I encourage you to read one of his works. Either an autobiography or a biography of his life. He was a man of tremendous joy, prayer, and thankfulness. And he was an evangelist living in the 1800s who cared for thousands of orphans. But get this. He prayed for every penny of the cost. Again, for clarity. He prayed, not paid, okay, for every penny of the cost. He's known to never have asked God for a penny. Excuse me. He's, never known, he's known never to ask for a penny, but solely pray to God for all of his needs. And there's no exaggeration in that text. Listen to a portion of his testimony as I read him writing in his journal in 1844 from a book called Delighted in God. In November 1844, I, that's George, began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without one single intermission, whether sick or in health or on the land or on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be, 18 months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and I prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed and then the second was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them. And six more years passed before the third was converted. And I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. I've been praying day by day, check this, y'all, for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these two individuals, and yet they remain unconverted. But I hope in God, I pray on, and I look yet for the answer. Therefore, brethren and sisters, go on waiting upon the Lord. Go on praying, only be sure you ask for things that are in accordance to the mind of God. Go on, therefore, praying, expect an answer, look for it, and in the end, you'll have to praise God for it. Isn't that amazing? But providence, that's not the end of the story, right? Check this out. 
of the two individuals still mentioned in Muller's journal at the time of his writing, one became a believer shortly before Muller died. And that last one, that fifth one, he became a believer a few years after his death. Mind-blowing testimony, right? Do you see Muller's passion? Do you see Muller's earnestness? Do you see his expectancy in prayer? He was a relentless man of prayer. There's two truths, Providence, I want you all to consider and, and think about in prayer. The first one is this. God wants to hear from you. God wants to hear from me. He doesn't need to, but he wants to. Let that sink in for a second. The second is this. If God expects that you will ask him for things, then it follows that he has the ability to give you what you ask. In fact, we know that God has the ability to give us immeasurably more than we can ask, according to Ephesians 3. Questions for you. Really think about this. Are there things or people that you have given up on in prayer? Do you pray in the morning when you rise? Do you pray on or during the way to work? When conflicts arises with friends or spouses or on the job, when you feel that tension and the flesh is coming out and you want to give somebody the business verbally, do you pray then that you might glorify God in those situations? Do you pray with or for your spouse? If you're not married, do you pray for that spouse according to God's will? Is your heart's desire to pray? Providence, prayer must be our first response and not our last resort. Prayer must have its rightful place in our heart as the very way we communicate and dialogue with God. Prayer is one of our greatest gifts and it allows us to talk and commune with the gift giver. And I pray that you would see it that way, that I would see it that way, and that we would pray always. And prayer leads us to thankfulness, and that's our last command from God in this text. It's God's will for us to, number three, to be thankful always. You know, Providence, my, my family and I's transition from Orlando to, to Omaha has been um, an experience. Like, it's, all I can say is it's been a joyful yet crazy and amazing journey this far. And this was our very first Thanksgiving here in Omaha. And for many of us today, like when this holiday season comes around, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the like, some of us are getting our houses decorated, right? Some of us um, have our calendars planned already. We got those pajama outfits nicely prepared for that family photo that you can take and put on Facebook. Maybe you have some family and friends that are coming into town. Or maybe you're like me and you're excited about all that, but you haven't done nothing, right? That's, I feel like that's a lot of us here, huh? So what I'm getting at is that Thanksgiving, Christmas, this holiday time, at least here in the West, is a time for us culturally where we're seem to ushered to think about gratitude and Thanksgiving, right? We sing all the songs. You know, if you're like me, you go into Walmart. Some of y'all may have some more money and go to Target or Hy-Vee. You know what I mean? But you go in there and you see all the thematic stuff there pulling us in to be thankful and buy stuff. We think of things and people, right, our family, our friends, our jobs, all these things that we can be thankful for. However, for some of us, the opposite is true. For some of us, we can have a spirit of ingratitude because that family member that was there last year, a few years before, is not there for this Thanksgiving or this Christmas. 
Or maybe they're there, but because of a family feud, they're not over there. Or maybe you lost that job, or you lost that house, or maybe you haven't lost the job or the house, but you want it and you've been praying for it, but God hasn't yet brought that to fruition. That being said, why should we? Why should we, as Christians, primarily or supremely be thankful? Should Christian Thanksgiving look different than what the world celebrates on November? Should Thanksgiving be an experience different for the Christian than the non-Christian? I would argue yes, because from the end of the Bible to the beginning, we see that thankfulness is an overflowing of the heart of somebody that's in tune with God. In Psalm 147, the psalmist writes what? Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. The apostle Paul and his letter to the church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 3, he says this three-word sentence, and be thankful. And then in our text today, we see what? That we are to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so today, I want to be bold to say, let's redeem the word thanksgiving, to truly know what we mean when we say it as believers. This is kind of tough what I'm going to say, but I want you to listen really closely because I'm not, I'm going to say it the right way. I'm going to read it off this paper, okay? Number one, if you are feeling, quote unquote, joy or thanksgiving, primarily as a result of things from the world or because of your present circumstances to the point where your thankfulness, quote unquote, for things supersedes the creator of all things. That is false thanksgiving. That is pseudo thanksgiving. That's not true thanksgiving. You know, a once... A wise lady once told me, boy, you can have nice things as long as nice things don't have you. You can have nice things as long as nice things don't have you. Secondly, if you're not thankful as a believer or an unbeliever, you're missing the mark as well. You know, unthankfulness is called this. Unthankfulness is called ingratitude. And I'm speaking the truth here. Ingratitude is a sin. In the same way that lying, stealing, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, things that we know to be true in the Bible is a sin, ingratitude, too, is a sin. But there's good news. I like, it's getting dark right now. It's good news. There's true thanksgiving, biblical thanksgiving, the giving of thanks to God for all of his blessings, namely our salvation in Jesus, should be one of the most distinctive marks for all of us who profess faith in Jesus. We're called to always give thanks in everything, no matter what the circumstances. And we see this expression of thanks in who? In the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. This Jesus, who modeled prayer for us continually, waking up very early in the morning, when it was still dark, to pray. Who prayed before going to the cross, sorrowful, as we read in Scripture, to the point of death, and praying for God's will to be done. Take this cup from me, Lord, not as you will, but as I will. And what do we find Jesus doing? going to the cross for us joyfully. This Jesus who gave thanks before feeding the 5,000 and gave thanks before he raised Lazarus before the grave from the dead. 
This Jesus, who in establishing the Lord's Supper, a.k.a. communion, the love feast, the Eucharist, took a cup of wine, broke bread, and gave thanks as he distributed amongst his disciples, saying what? This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And like, likewise, the cup poured out is a new covenant of my blood. That's the Jesus that I want to talk about. And that's the Jesus who's our perfect example of being joyful Praying, praying always and giving thanks always. And this is the will of Christ Jesus in us, that we give thanks. Why? Why, Providence? Why are we to give thanks? It's because of the gospel, understanding that God has reconciled us by and through faith in that Jesus that I just spoke about. In him, through him, and for his purposes, but also for our good. Providence, Jesus frees us and enables us to what? To rejoice always. He's our mediator interceding on our behalf as we pray always. And he appoints us in everything to give thanks always. Amen. And I give thanks to God for my wife, my awesome wife, for my kids, for City Light Church, and for my family. And I also give thanks to him for other things. You know, like when Jesus declared all food clean. I love me some good bacon, right? No, that's a joke. You can laugh at that, right? But seriously, I'm growing and giving thanks in the unlikely and the difficult seasons too, knowing that God, even in those, is working to conform me more into the image of his son, Jesus. But most importantly, what I'm most grateful for and what I'm most thankful for and what all of us should be most thankful for is for our personal and saving relationship with Jesus. In Jesus, our joy will be and is full. And thus we will be full in every way and we will be satisfied. Jesus said this, hear me closely. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not what? Shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see it, Providence? Christ is our thanksgiving. Our true feast is in him. In him we have true thanksgiving, a feast that lasts forever. And unlike Thanksgiving Thursday where you eat and have your food, you're full, and you go into that food coma, coma, or I like to say you get the itis, but eventually you get hungry again, Christ fills us and satisfies us perfectly and forever. You may have heard it before, and I'm going to say it to you all again. In order for Christ to be anything, he must be everything. If you have everything but Jesus, you have nothing. But if you have nothing but Jesus, you have everything. God's will for us as his people, Providence, is to give us everything we need in Jesus so that we might worship him with everything that we are. Providence. My prayer for us today is that we will be known as a people who rejoice always. That we will be known as a people who who is prayerful always. And that we will be known as a people who gives thanks always. For that is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Father, you are so good. We had such great worship this morning, and we're going to have great worship at the conclusion of this service, God. And we want to be able to give thanks, God, where the people here feel the joy for through the Holy Spirit to raise their hand and sing with gladness. God, would we be able to live in such a way during these holiday seasons that people would see us, see you in us. That we would have a joy that 
that supersedes our sorrowfulness, God. And I hope that people today did not hear me minimizing the challenges that we face. The loved ones that are lost, the circumstances that we're in, those are real things, God. But I just pray in the Holy Spirit that you would allow us to experience, each and every one of us, to experience that joy as we reflect on the gospel. God, we love you oh so much, and we fear you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And Providence, we now have an opportunity to partake in communion, also known as the love feast. And during this time, we celebrate and proclaim the Lord's death. He has met our every need, and because of him, we will never hunger and we will never thirst. When you're ready, please feel free to come up and um, take the elements. We also have some gluten-free items in the back. But I do want to advise and encourage, if you're not yet a believer, not to come because you don't need the elements. You need what they represent, and that's Jesus' broken body and shed blood for you. And so, Providence, I pray that this will be a celebratory time for us as we um, take communion and, and enjoy this meal. And we're reminded to be joyful, to be prayerful, and to be thankful. Amen? Amen.